0: Amen. So, um, passage here obviously builds off of the passage that we looked at last week because of the first word is that conjunction that connects it backwards. So, when we think about this passage, we can't think about it outside of what God has been revealing to us through Dr. Luke as he writes these early moments of the church and showing how it's beginning to grow and establish itself. Um, so as we approach this passage, I want to start off with a question that you can think about and reflect on as we go through it, And that is this: What have you dedicated to the Lord? Okay, and you can answer that a whole bunch of different ways. You could say, you know, I've dedicated my children to the Lord. Maybe you came before the church one time and you went through a dedication process and you dedicated those kids to the Lord. Uh, maybe you dedicated your house to the Lord. Maybe you dedicated a a gift or a material possession that you have to the Lord. Maybe you dedicated your job, your career, um, your academic career, like shooting to Lord, I'm giving you this, and you open up the doors that you want, so you dedicated that to the Lord. I think we would all say, all of us who are believers in Jesus, we could at least say we've dedicated our lives to the Lord. Okay. So I just wanted you to think about that in lieu of what we're going to study today. What is it that you've dedicated to the Lord? Because in our passage today, you have this very stark contrast to the unity and the selflessness that we saw in this last passage that was really beginning to grow and flourish in this early Christian community. So after the resurrection of Jesus, this early Christian community lived together and they were sharing everything. It tells us this is in chapter two, he repeats it in chapter four, and it's growing and getting more powerful because in chapter 2 they're selling um, possessions and now in chapter 4 they're selling land and houses they're taking the money that they make from that they're distributing it to all who had need the apostles were performing these incredible, miraculous signs and wonders, and the community was thriving and growing. They embodied the teachings of Jesus themselves. I mean, you could just see Jesus and his ministry working through them, like the same type of things he did, he's now doing through them. And you can't mistake the uh, connection there. I mean, it's almost the same wording that Peter uses a lot of times. It's the same exact miracles that Jesus performed that we see them performing again. So this is kind of like epitomizing, if you will, the utopia of this unity and this selflessness that we see as the foundation of this early church. So far, we've been told that this church has grown by adding 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. We know they added another 2,000 after the healing of the lame beggar there at the gate beautiful outside the temple because it said it brought the numbers to 5,000. And there was another passage that says there were those being added to the church daily. So you're talking about this incredible, vast movement that all of these people are coming in and everything is going so good. So we're told about all of these additions and then finally we come to this passage that starts telling us about some subtractions. And this is the first time we've seen this in this story. So here we come to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if Barnabas in last week's text was a positive example of this unity and this charity... Then our next couple is the exact opposite of that. They are an example of the negativity and the negative attitude that some people could have coming into the body of Christ. So with that being said, let's look at these verse by verse. Start with verse one, but again, connected directly back to the other passage, and we'll see the other connections as well. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Almost the same exact wording. We know Barnabas did this. He sold a piece of property. So the story begins much like the last message or last passage does, uh, but it takes a dark, ugly turn. It says, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. So the picture is him and his wife conspired. He said, hey, I sold it. I've kept back some of this money. Um, This is what we're going to say that we sold the thing for. They go in, they take it to Peter. Here, I sold the property. Here it is. And providentially, miraculously, the Holy Spirit gives this understanding to Peter to know there's something not right here. That's not what he got out of that. And that's an important thing. We'll get to that in a moment. On a lighter note, let me just say, there are some people who approach this passage and you ask them, what's the moral of the story you think? And their response is, well, if you have money that is extra, don't tell your wife about it, okay? And that's not the point of the story. If you pull that as the moral here in the first few verses, you've totally missed it. But it does remind me, Side note, there was a staff member here at Morris Hill. He's still a staff member. He will, he will be left unnamed. But uh, one time I was having a conversation with him, and we, he was talking about something he was going to buy, and he said, I'm going to buy that with my C money. And I was like, your C money? What is your C money? He goes, oh, that's the mon- my money that my wife don't see. And I was like, ooh. He has since repented of that, but I knew I was going to use that as an illustration. So this text says that the only thing that he gave was a portion to the apostles, so really, if you begin to think about the heart of this message, the heart of this passage and what's really being portrayed to us is that it wasn't really even about the money. It's more about the lack of honesty. It's the lack of concern for the unity of this community. It's, it's a heart issue more than it is a wallet issue by far. So there's this very interesting Greek verb that um, he uses here. And again, I'm not going to go into Greek because that would mean nothing to the majority of the people here. But let me just tell you, the verb that says that he kept back some of the money is a verb that is very, very rare in the Septuagint, also in our New Testament, okay? So whenever you see that that very rare verb that is used, a lot of times when you find it, you can find a strong connection as well. Now, the actual Greek verb means this, definition-wise. It means to pilfer or to embezzle. Now, put that word in there instead, and it becomes interesting. Because he decided to embezzle money. Now, think about that. You cannot embezzle money from yourself. You can only embezzle money from someone else. You can't pilfer from yourself. You have to have someone else to pilfer from. So it's very interesting that that Luke uses this because as it goes on in the connection with what Peter says, it doesn't seem to be the situation that he had to give this money. So there must be something else going on here and, and Luke is making a connection. Now, the reason I think that is interesting because the verb that he uses is also used in the Septuagint in a very specific place, and the situation that it's used in is very similar to this one. If you go all the way back to Joshua chapter seven, you read a story about when Israel is coming into the promised land. This is after they've wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Now they're ready to take the land. What was the very first city that they defeated? Do you remember? Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down, okay? If you remember, before they ever went into that battle, God said, I'm going to deliver the city into your hands, but when it falls, do not take anything for yourself because it's holy. Everything is there because the first fruits always belong to the Lord. And so don't touch anything in there. Don't take anything in there. And literally, it says that this one guy, when they went in, this one warrior, his name was Achan. And guess what it says? And Achan kept for himself, same exact verb kept for himself some of the treasures that they gathered from their victory over Jericho. If you remember, the reason they find this out is because when they go to defeat the next city, which is a much smaller city, and they're like, this is an easy one, they go in and they're defeated by this city called Ai. And they go back and they're like, what happened? Lord, I thought you were delivering these. And he said, their sin in the camp is providentially uh, revealed to them that it was a guy by the name of Achan, and when it came knowledge to him, he had buried it in his tent, so him and his whole family knew about it, and they all lost their lives in God's judgment. That's the connection that I think Luke is making here by using this very rare, rarely used verb, making a connection right back to the story of Achan as well. And so what does that say? I think it's telling us that in this moment... Um, Ananias had a wrong perspective, and that was that somehow this money was not his own. Somehow it had to be not his because you can't embezzle from someone else. So this had to be dedicated to the Lord. Was it dedicated to the Lord by him? I think that's probably what the case is because when you continue on a little bit, um, you, you can see that as this unfolds, it kind of points backwards to what we've seen already established. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But Peter goes on and presents this case in verse four. While it remained unsold... Did it not remain your own, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Okay, so in other words, who's the man that he lied to? To Peter. Now, is Peter claiming to be God? No, But what he's saying is, you came in here and lied to me because you think I'm just a man that doesn't understand these things, but you've forgotten that the Spirit of God is working in our community, and the Spirit of God has revealed to me, a simple man, that you are not being honest, and this is not what you sold the land for. You haven't lied to me, you've lied to God. It actually goes back to this very old tradition, um, or not old tradition, but old debate in the law of Moses. It was very interesting because when Moses had the law, now again, when you go into the expansiveness of the law, they give you all these different scenarios. And like, if this happens and this is the punishment for that. One of them that's very interesting is robbery. If you go and burglarize your neighbor's home, um, if you do it at night, it's a more severe punishment than if you do it during the day. Now there's always been debate because the text actually doesn't tell us why it's a more severe punishment, it just says that it is. And so the Jewish wisdom literature often would debate like why they think this is true. And some of them would say, "Well, it's because at night the people can't defend themselves and they're asleep, so they treat them worse because at least in the daytime they could defend their stuff because they're awake and ready and watching." But one rabbi had this perspective that I think he was spot on, and he said this: He said, the reason that it's more severe at night is because if you go at night, it means that you don't want other people to see you. And that means you care more about what people think than what God thinks. But if you go during the day, you've at least treated man and God in the same way. You don't care what anybody thinks. And he said, so he treats more severely the one who cares more about what men think than what God thinks. Now, in this passage, do you see the relationship All this has been happening. Barnabas has sold this land. And and who knows what's happened? We're not told. But who knows what happened? When Barnabas brings this, I mean, this was just a tradition that they had so far. I mean, a tradition that's like a a month old tradition, right? And so they bring it in. They don't know what else to do with this money because who else is gonna disperse this? So they lay it at the feet of the apostles. Now, we know very quickly the apostles don't want this money. Um, They end up like, this is too much work for us. We don't have time to distribute this. That's where they begin to elect deacons into the church and say, y'all take care of this and make sure you distribute it. So it wasn't about the apostles wanting more money and more power. No, they were focused on teaching the word of God and proclaiming the resurrection of the Lord. So it wasn't about money, but this is the only people they knew. So as all this was beginning to grow and everyone was beginning to dedicate themselves to this movement, they didn't know where else to bring it, but put it at the apostles' feet. So whenever they do that and they would come in and they would bring this, don't you know that Peter's probably like, hey, we got needs here, and he starts handing out. Well, they just know Barnabas brought that. Can you see all the people coming out going, thank you, Barnabas? Man, that was so kind of you to do that. I can't tell you what this means for me and my family to be able to take care of, of these issues that we've had, to be able to get some care for our young ones, whatever the situation may be. And you just see, and then maybe Ananias and Sapphira over there going, wow, look how much praise he's getting. Look, look, look how great he looks in this community. All be, we have some land. We could sell that. Maybe they speak up and go, you know what? We have some land too, and we're going to sell it, and we're going to dedicate the whole thing to this same movement. And everybody's like, yes, this is so awesome. Praise God. And then maybe when they go away, they're like, you know what? Why did we do that? Because that was like a lot. Like, you know, I mean, just a part of that would be okay. But I mean, we're giving that, that's really our retirement is what we were thinking of, right? I mean, what are we going to live off of if something goes wrong? And so they began to rethink it and go, you know, maybe we'll sell it and we'll give a portion of it, but we'll just hold some of it back we'll tell them about it. And that will be for our retirement, okay? And so that will be just, just in case something goes wrong, we'll do it. And you know what? If we get older and nothing goes wrong, then we'll dedicate that as well. Okay, but somehow I think that there was a dedication that was made out loud where they spoke up and said, hey, we're giving this to the Lord. The reason I say that is because the text, even though Peter is making this argument, I think what he's saying is, until you dedicated it to the Lord, you could have done whatever you wanted to with it. But then you made this statement and you said, this is the Lord's. Once you said that, it's not yours anymore. You've dedicated that and now it's holy. Holy. And so that's where he's really beginning to pick up on this and saying, you know what? You made this decision. You're the one that said this out loud and you dedicated it to the Lord and you can't dedicate part of something to the Lord. It's either all or nothing. Notice that Peter does nothing but ask questions, no responses, just this very deep conviction, this very deep, heavy moment. Listen to it again. Verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own after it was sold? Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And then he ends with that statement. You have not lied to man, but to God. Why have you allowed Satan to enter in to your heart? And I think Luke is being very specific in this. And I think that he's making, he's making, I told you, he's relating it back to the previous passage. Look at chapter four, verse 32. Again, right there towards the end of chapter four, going into chapter five, look at this verse. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one, what does it say? Heart. They were of one heart and one soul. What does he say to Ananias? Why have you allowed Satan to contrive this in your heart? He has a divided heart. That's what Peter's pointing out. That's what's wrong with you, Ananias. You have a divided heart. They were of one heart, which led them to consider, listen to how that passage continues. They were of one heart and soul, and no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So Peter's there talking about, or Luke's there talking about a declaration that was made within this community. He said they were all. whose they were all? Well, I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, you're not talking about like years ago, you're not talking about months ago, you're not even talking about weeks ago, you're talking about days ago. And he says that all of these people said out loud, nothing we have is our own. It all belongs to the Lord and we have this in common. So we must assume from what he said there going into chapter 5 that that's what Peter's talking about is, you know what? You didn't have to make that declaration. You didn't have to say that it was all there. You didn't have to agree with everyone else, but you did. So Ananias was not of one heart. His heart was divided. He had one part of his heart in the community of the people of God, and he had one part of his heart still in the concerns and worries of this world. Now, I'll tell you my honest opinion is that I believe that Ananias and Sapphira were sold out for this community. I don't think they were like, The um, magician, Simon, who later on is like, ooh, I love that power of the Holy Spirit that you have. Can I purchase that? Because from the beginning, all he wanted was for his own. I believe this is a story of people who had very good intentions in the beginning. They really were caught up in this community. Why? Because for them to leave whatever status they had to join this community, this was not popular in that day and time. For them to see this and join this, they had to be convinced of it in some form or fashion. But as they got into it, there was like this this thought of, but what if this doesn't go right? What if this falls apart? What, What if this doesn't last forever? What if this isn't what we think it's going to be? Maybe I should save just a little bit back here and hold on just in case things don't work out. That's not faith. That's a divided heart. All of this happened because he allowed the archenemy of the spirit, Satan, to enter his heart. Now, I want you to see this picture and how star- uh, what, a, what a stark um, contrast this is and maybe even a parallel connection. Um, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, you see the same exact scenario. The Garden of Eden was a place of bliss. They just presented the church as a place of bliss they shared everything in common. Everything good, God gave to them. Everything good, God gave to them. No one had need. No one had need. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here is someone giving a little bit to the church and holding on to themselves. Satan enters into the picture. Satan enters into the picture. Death happens. Death happens. I think Luke is being very intentional to say, what started off so well has now taken this very ugly turn. Satan filled Ananias' heart just as he had filled Judas's heart. Think about that connection. I mean, both of them were committed to the kingdom of God, and I believe Thoroughly so. I don't think Judas was like a guy who was a spy from the beginning. I think he really believed Jesus was the Lord and Savior. But then Jesus started doing some things that didn't make sense to him. And that's when everything that he had dedicated, he started pulling a little bit of it back. He's like, hmm, I always thought the Messiah was going to do this and act like that. I don't know if this is... And then the other part that's very similar is they both were wowed by influence and money. We know that the scripture tells us that Judas was the one who took care of the money for the disciples. And there's even a passage that tells us that he had been taking some off of the top so that we we know he had a love for money. And so maybe the same thing is happening here. Maybe it's a connection to all of these. Maybe this is what Peter's reminding him of. Hey, you know what? This land was yours until you dedicated it. And then you chose to undedicate part of it. Now, we could be very judgmental towards Ananias and Sapphira, or we could do what I believe this text really wants us to do and reflect on how often we do this every day. I asked you, what are some of the things you dedicated to the Lord? Some of us have stood before church and dedicated our children to the Lord. And then we've taken part of their lives back and said, Lord, you can have you know, the spiritual aspect, but I'm going to steer this part towards Harvard. I'm going to steer this part towards being a doctor. I'm going to steer this part towards being a great baseball, basketball, football, whatever it is what happens we we start off so beautiful and then with this full dedication i want god to be the savior of this child i want him to grow up in the nurture and admonition of the lord i want him to grow in favor with god and men and then when they get a little bit older we start stealing little parts away back for ourselves again we undedicate dedicate our marriage to the lord until it becomes really difficult and then we undedicate We dedicate our money to the Lord until things get tight, and then we undedicate. We dedicate our dreams to the Lord until it looks like our dreams are going in a direction Well, I'm not going to be happy with. We undedicate. And here's the worst one of all. When we got saved, we dedicated our whole lives to the Lord. And then as we walk with Christ, but with one foot still in the world, we begin to undedicate parts of our lives. Maybe it's your work life, your hobby, your academics. I don't know what it is, but I think you can see that. And I don't want you to hear condemnation in my voice. I'm not here to make you feel condemned. What I want you to do is reflect. Reflect on this. What is it the Holy Spirit wants us to gain from this? Because anything that God would want us to reflect on that we are doing wrong is because there's a greater benefit from doing it right. There's a greater blessing from living God's way than there is from living my way. And maybe what he's trying to show you is there's a lack of faith in part of your life that needs to be addressed. What if this situation had gone completely different? What if Ananias walks into Peter and says, Peter, you remember when the other day I said that I had this piece of property that I was gonna sell? He's like, yeah. And you remember I said I was gonna give all of it to the Lord? Yeah. I don't know if I can I mean, I I want to, like, I I really feel moved by this, but as I started thinking about it and talking to my wife about it, like, what if something goes wrong? Like, what, I I mean, I feel real comfortable giving this much, but I don't think I have enough faith to give it all. I, I feel like, Peter, would you pray for me to have more faith? Think what a miraculous moment that would have been. I mean, all the miracles and wonders that we've seen, and you've just asked this guy that the Holy Spirit has been working through powerfully in the beginning of this church to pray that you would have more faith? Wow, this story could have went in a whole nother direction that was powerful that we may hold up and go, this is what God has called us to. But instead, he wanted to keep up the facade that everything was dedicated to the Lord, even though he knew that it wasn't. Are we guilty of that? Are we guilty of coming into a place like this week after week and pretending it's all dedicated to the Lord when we know that it's not? I've used this illustration before, but it's so good because I came up with it. I'm just kidding. I probably didn't come up with it. But um, it's, it's a great illustration because I think it gives you the perspective of what church should be but what we've turned it into. And that's the difference of a doctor's office and a job interview. When you go into a job interview, you're like, man, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, I'm so smart. Look at where I went to school, all these places. Look at these places that I've worked, and they're not even worthy of me anymore. So that's why I'm here because you need me because I can make things happen. That's what you say. When you go to the doctor's office, you say, I've got something wrong. I, I don't know what it is. There's this pain. There's this scar. There's this constant whatever it may be. I, I need help. I need healing. I need direction. I've tried everything that I know how to do, and I can't fix this. I need some help. Now, think about for a moment if you switch those two. Think about if you walked into the job interview, and, you're like, and they're like, uh, why should we hire you? And You looked at them and said, you shouldn't. My life is a mess I can't keep anything together. Uh, I don't know what's wrong half the time. My marriage is falling apart. My kids are all over the place. I I don't even know if I can keep up with myself half the time. They would be like, okay, move on to the next one. What if you went into the doctor's office and did the opposite? Hey, uh, uh, I'm Dr. So-and-so. What are you here for? Just let you know how good I am. (laughs) Really? There's nothing wrong? Nothing wrong. I'm great. It's good. It's awesome. I'm strong, healthy. No problems. Why are you wasting my time? (laughs) That's the way it would be, right? What is church supposed to be, a job interview or a doctor's office? Then why do we treat it as a job interview? Why do we come into a place like this and pretend that we got it all together? There's nothing wrong. My marriage is great. My kids are awesome. My job is exactly what I thought it would be and going in the exact direction I thought it would. My life is just, man, there's no questions about it whatsoever. I'm living in the blessing of the Lord every day. We're lying to ourselves, but we want everyone else to think everything's good. Why? You ready for this? It's gonna hurt because we care more about what people think than what God thinks. It's the same problem that we have here. Look out, continues in verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Apparently, the early church already had its own morticians. I mean, like these young men, I don't know if they were standing there or if they had to be called in, but these guys knew exactly what to do. Apparently, these were young men that had this responsibility because they do it twice on this day. They come in, they wrap this body up, they take it out, and they're gone, and they're burying this person. I mean, think about that for a moment. This person is alive And then this person is dead. This person is standing there thinking about what they can do with the money that they kept back. This person has absolutely nothing, and his money is left for someone else. Think about what he says here. Look back at that verse. And great, what does it say? Fear came over all who heard it. Why is that important? Well, if you go back to our text from last week, what did it tell us about when everything was going good? There was a great power that developed a great grace that led to great charity. And now you see still a great power, but this great power leads to great fear. Why? Why? Because there wasn't great charity. There's half-heartedness. That's why I know Luke is connecting it back to this other passage in so many numerous ways, but this is one of it. Great power that leads to great grace leads to great charity. But when you have a lack of charity and that great power steps in, it's going to lead to great fear. The men wrapped his body, and they did so quickly. Uh, Matter of fact, we know that three hours later, they were back. Now, that's a fast funeral right there. Now, we know in the ancient world, they had fast funerals. Matter of fact, when someone died, they were usually buried within 24 hours, because remember, they didn't do any embalming process. They, buried, they would wrap the bodies, put them in a tomb. The tomb was above ground, sealed with a rock, just like we hear about with Jesus. That's the, kind of, that's the way they buried people from the Jewish tradition. So they didn't have to wait a long time. It's usually about 24 hours is over, the body's buried. They did this in three hours, which means there was no ceremony whatsoever. There was no calling together. And from the ancient world, we know that there's really only three occasions that they would bury someone so quickly. One of them would be if it was a criminal, we saw this with Jesus, because he was killed as a criminal. The second one is if the person died by their own hand, they would bury them quickly. Um, And the last one is this, if the people felt that the person died because of the judgment of God, they would bury them quickly. And that's what happened in this case. And that's why he tells us that literally within three hours, they come back and and they get the wife. Look at verse seven. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And you think about where was she? What was she doing? Why did they choose to come separate? I, I don't know what the case may be. We're not given those details. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much And she said, yes, for so much. Again, Luke leaves out these details. Like, what is the price? Why can't we know what that is? Because we would probably so focus on that that we would miss the heart of the passage. So Luke doesn't tell us what the price was. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Now watch this, what happens in verse 10. Immediately she fell down, where? where the money was supposed to go. She fell down at his feet. Remember, that's where they've been putting the money. That's where Ananias came in and laid part of the money. And you know what the other part was paid with? Their lives. He fell down and she falls down at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Can you imagine being these young men for a moment. Now, again, we don't know who they are or these other disciples, other apostles. We don't have no idea. But I want you to think about for a moment, they're a part of this community. They're looking. They've seen this. They've seen all this growth. They've seen this powerful display of God's power, the spirit of God moving through these men. And then all of a sudden, in one day, they've seen death overwhelm this community. Now, again, two deaths For all the growth that they've seen may not seem like a lot, but when you bury two bodies because of an act of God, literally within three hours, you're starting to go, whoa, what's happening? What's going wrong? What's turned here? What's changing? Again, there's a lot that's left unsaid about this passage, but I think the point of it is Luke doesn't want us to miss what the heart of this passage is about. Again, look at verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So now a great grace in our last passage has turned into a great fear in this passage. Now, this story may be really difficult for us to understand or maybe even accept of why it seems so harsh that God would deal with them in this way. And I even saw one of the commentators said, if God still dealt with the church this way, every church would have to have a morgue in the basement and a mortician on staff because bodies would be dropping every Sunday. And that's true, absolutely true. So why don't we see it more? Well, I'll give you my take on this. Again, this is my perspective. There are other perspectives. The reason I think that you see something so dramatic here and you don't necessarily see it in our day and time is because they didn't have the word of God. They don't have the New Testament. They didn't have the recordings of the teachings of Jesus. They didn't have all of these things. And they, this was a new movement, and God had to put his stamp of approval on it. That's why you see all these miraculous things that the apostles are able to do, because you could not deny that that's the power of God working through them. So it was kind of God stamping on that. This is a stamp of God's holiness. Where the other one was a stamp of, this is definitely me, and this is my movement, this is another stamp of that saying, this is definitely me, because you remember, I'm righteous. I'm holy, don't touch things that belong to the Lord. We actually could go back and see a lot of these examples in scripture. We already talked about Achan, don't take the things of the Lord. You remember Aaron's sons? Yeah, Nadab and Abihu? They were the ones who were in the holy temple and they were burning a strange fire before the Lord. And what they did was they took a censer and they were burning this incense in the censer. But God had told them, I only want a certain prescription of incense in there. And they took whatever they had and put it in there. And it says a fire came out of the holy of holies and consumed them. Why? Because they touched things and messed with things that were holy and treated them as if they weren't. Korah disrespected the holy appointed authority of God. Moses rebelled against him. The earth opened up and swallowed him and his rebellion and just came back together. Don't forget about Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? He was the one when David was retrieving back the Ark of the Covenant. As they were bringing it back in, they were celebrating. It was like a parade. They were so excited about this. They were bringing it in on this cart and they were bringing it back and they were gonna put it back into the temple and, or the tabernacle. And um, they were so excited about it. And right as they did it, the cart that it was on hit a little bump and the Ark of the Covenant began to rock back and forth and it looked like it was gonna fall off of the cart. And Uzzah reached out to steady it. And when he touched it, God smote him dead. David got so mad about it. He complained to God, Why are you doing this? We were trying to do this. We were trying to honor you. And God said, If you were trying to honor me, why didn't you go back and read what I said about how this is to be transported? It wouldn't have been on a cart, it would have been on the shoulders of the Levites. I told you explicitly how to do this, and you've disregarded everything that I've said. Don't touch what's holy. Don't treat it as if it's not. That's what he says over and over again. It reminds us of the dangers of materialism and deceit, which undermine our community and our witness. So how does this passage apply to us? It applies because we are about to partake or have the opportunity to take of the elements of the Lord's Supper. I think this is a great fitting way. We do this the first Sunday of every month. It just so happens that it falls with this passage. But I think that it was divinely inspired that we do this today because I think this is a picture of our reflection that we should always be having. Is there anything that I've dedicated to the Lord that I have undedicated parts of it back to myself? Is there anything that I trusted God with that now I'm having a hesitation to fully have faith and trust him in it. I don't know what it might be. It could be any area of your life. But before you partake of this, I want you to think and reflect on that and have a conversation with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Paul later on warns us of this same thing. He says, many of you have fallen asleep. And by fallen asleep, he means died because you have eaten and drinking unworthily. In other words, you have approached this table and you've touched something that's holy and you haven't treated it as such. Now again, that is grape juice that's poured out of a grape juice container that came from a grocery store. That is unleavened bread that came from a box that we bought in a grocery store. Those things in and of themselves are not special except for the purpose that we have designated this time for. And this time is what's so holy. And as we approach it, we approach it with this mindset of what it represents. It represents the broken body of Jesus and it represents his spilled blood, which is a picture of him, God, not holding anything back from you. He didn't undedicate anything once it was dedicated. And because of that, you have the opportunity for salvation, for forgiveness of sin, to leave shame and guilt at the cross, to walk in the freedom of Christ, to know him, to be known by him. And all God says is, don't come up here and touch something that's holy without first thinking about what you're doing. Because as we approach it, we should always be reflecting on our own life. Does that mean you have to be perfect to come into here and take it? No, not at all. What it means is that you should be honest and say, God, there's areas of my life that I just haven't trusted you with. I don't know why. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. It's both passion and honesty at the same time. That's what God wants from us. That's what we should give to each other. That's what we lack in today's church, is the unity, the clarity, the transparency, the honesty. So before you come today, I wanna to give you an opportunity to reflect. Just close your eyes for a moment, bow your head. I just wanna say one thing to you while you've got everything else tuned out. Before you come up and receive, you may come to this conclusion I, Jack, I don't know that I could do that today. Man, you know what? I applaud you for that. I applaud you for being honest and saying, you know what? There's an area of my life I'm just not sure that I'm ready to give up to the Lord. There's so, I'm so holding on to it. Will you pray for me? Absolutely. I'll pray for you. But I also want to point you to a direction. To my right, if you're looking towards me, it's going to be your left. There's a prayer banner over there. And there'll be people there who would be glad to pray for you on this. Again, they're not special people, magic people. They're just brothers and sisters who love to pray for other brothers and sisters. And so if you got something going on in your life, it could be even something unrelated to what I'm talking about right now. Maybe you just found out something from the doctor. Maybe there's something going on at the job. Maybe there's something going on in your own heart and mind. And you just would really love to have a brother or sister just pray in agreement with prayer with you. That's what that is for over there. But it's also for a place for you to come up and say, man, I'm really struggling. Will you pray that God would grow my faith? They would love to stand with you and pray for you at that request. But after you have reflected and you've given everything over to the Lord and you know there's nothing that you're holding back, I invite you to come and receive as Jesus gave to his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it, and he said, "B,lessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. Jesus is the bread of life. His body was broken, was placed in the ground. God called forth the bread of life from the ground in his resurrection. What a beautiful picture of the broken body of Christ. Likewise, he took the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he blessed it with the Hebrew blessing. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. The rabbis had a saying where there is no wine, there is no joy. It's a picture of Jesus' death, and him taking our sins was a picture of extending joy to us. Jesus shared his cup. They all drank from his because their blood's not good enough. Only his is. And he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Take it and drink it. And the next words are probably the most important for us today. Remember me. Remember me. Remember what I did for you. Remember what I taught you. Remember what I promised you. Remember what I modeled for you. Remember me. Remember what I did to extend salvation to you. And then when you've thought about all of that and you've reflected on your own life, I want you to come and receive and feel healing and wholeness, refreshing. Now, is the word in Hebrew, a refreshment that comes to the soul. Let's pray. God, May you be honored and glorified, not only in the way that your word is taught and presented, not only in the way that we sing songs together as a community, but as we reflect in honesty that we are so imperfect and you are so perfect. We are so unrighteous and you are so righteous. Lord, thank you for doing what it takes to apply the righteousness of Christ to us so that we could be made whole. Lord, we know that that was an incredible price that you paid and that this ceremony, this reflection that we walk through, that is so ancient and yet so right here today, Lord, it's an opportunity for us to remember. Lord, help us to remember what it's all about. In Jesus' name.